0: Welcome to another episode of America's Constitution. I'm Andy Lipka here with Professor Akhil Amar and a special guest today. Akil, tell us a little bit about our guest before I formally introduce her.
1: We have the great Amy Howe of SCOTUS Blog fame. You're going to hear more about Amy and more about SCOTUS Blog,
0: and I can't wait. Okay, well, welcome, Amy.
2: Thank you. It's good to be here.
0: Thank you. So let's tell our audience a little bit about you, and then we'll talk a lot about Scotus Blog and about uh, Amy's own blog. Although Scotus Blog is hers, but also her own blog, How on the Court, which is uh, you know independent of Scotus Blog. Amy is a uh, graduate of the University of North Carolina uh, at Chapel Hill, and uh, f- following her undergraduate years, um, she obtained a master's in Arab studies, uh, and then. Uh, went to law school at Georgetown University. So your degree in Arab studies is also from Georgetown then, is that right?
2: It is. I like to say that Georgetown has a program called the JDMSFS, um, which you get a, a degree from the law school and a degree in the foreign, from the Foreign Service School. It's a, a four-year program. I like to say that I managed to do in six years what most people do at four.
0: <laughs> <laughs> okay. And then she had a Supreme Court advocacy practice and uh, argued cases before the Supreme Court, argued two cases there, and was counsel in uh, over 20 uh, merits cases. Um, She also uh, taught Supreme Court litigation at uh, the Stanford Law School, the Harvard Law School, uh, at American University's Washington College of Law, and also at Vanderbilt Law School. So quite a significant uh, academic career. In 2002, uh, she and Tom Goldstein, who are husband and wife, founded a uh, SCOTUS blog. And soon after that, the renowned Supreme Court reporter Lyle Denniston joined them. Um, and over time, SCOTUS blog has grown dramatically, so that now over a hundred people uh, work there during any given year, uh, in one capacity or another. Um, so. Uh, Amy was the editor of SCOTUS blog and a reporter, and, you know, I, I think that is a gross underestimate of what actually went into uh, SCOTUS blog. If you go on it, you'll see its, its dramatic volume and assortment of information, uh, and it, it takes a tremendous amount of effort to do that, I can tell you, as someone who authors a little tiny website for uh, Professor Moore. And she continues to report for Skoda's blog, most notably, I think, from many of our points of view uh, on the live blog. But she also, as I said, has her own blog, How on the Court, and that is absolutely a, uh, you know, a, a journalistic outlet uh, in every respect. And this blog, if you look at it, it's... Uh, I was looking for the advertising on the blog and I couldn't find any. And apparently the blog is provided entirely as a, as a uh, public service. So congratulations on all this, Amy. And uh, I think the way I'd like to introduce SCOTUS blog is by having Akil tell us a little bit about how he utilizes it as a member of the Supreme Court ecosphere, if you will.
1: So I'm in New Haven. And the Supreme Court is not. So how do I find out in real time what's going on at the court, especially most dramatically when they're handing down decisions? And and in the old days, suppose, for example, that and this is a very a selfish point of view, but suppose, for example, I wanted to write an op-ed about a Supreme Court oral argument or... The day that a Supreme Court decision is coming down. Well, if it's an oral argument, I could go all the way down to DC because it's actually scheduled on a certain day and, and sort of watch it take place. But, you know, that's many hours to, sh- to schlep my carcass down there and to DC and, and hours back. But now because of SCOTUS blog, Amy and her colleagues can tell me what's happening at the oral argument in real time. So then I can maybe ride an op-ed based on their firsthand reportage. Or if I'm invited to to do something for a television show, a radio broadcast, thanks to Amy and her colleagues, I can feel as if I'm there in the room because the court hasn't made it that easy, but SCOTUS blog does. Now on decision day, that's even a little bit more complicated because the court doesn't tell us in advance which decisions are coming down when. But as they're coming down within 10 seconds, actually, thanks to SCOTUS blog. I know in, in New Haven, Connecticut, what's happening because Amy and her colleagues are describing it all. And I'm actually, it's really pretty cool if you've never experienced SCOTUS blog. I'm one of 10,000, 100,000, maybe more um, folks who are all tuning in to this website to receive the information. And, and there's a kind of a community of us SCOTUS blog fanboys and fangirls. And Amy is kind of the empress of it all. And again, you don't know necessarily which case is going to come down which day, but there's, you can make some educated guesses in part thanks to SCOTUS blog because the Supreme Court hears cases every month. It hears a certain number of cases every month, tries to divide the workload among the justices. And so toward the end of the term, you might know it's kind of like filling in a Sudoku game or something. Well, there only two cases that haven't actually come down from the november sitting and there are only three justices that haven't already written majority opinions from that sitting and it won't be so and so because they're likely to be in the minority and so it's probably you know the majority opinion you know we can predict is going to likely come down from so and so are they ahead of their workload or behind their workload depending on that when might be expect an opinion there's so much intelligent commentary on SCODUS blog, and I can just, I can, I can almost be in the room while I'm, you know, not to be too coarse about it, like sitting in the bathtub, you know, just, you know, in, in the luxury of my uh, Guilford estate, looking out on my country property, and Amy and her colleagues are bringing me into the room. They do many other things as well that we can talk about. But she's my eyes and ears on what's happening in the court, she and her colleagues. And and Amy, I just want to say before you know, we, we let you in, I really am a fanboy. I salute you. I think you've done a great public service. You've made it fun, but it's always serious as well. And that's a hard combination. We try to do that sometimes, Andy, on, on this podcast. We're always serious, but we also try to be fun. So thank you, Amy, for that. It's a great public service. You really have helped all American citizens understand the court better. And we're very grateful to you.
2: Wow. No, thank you. Um, I really appreciate it. You know, you've talked so kindly it, because I'm talking to you, you're talking about my colleagues and, and me, but you know, I have to say that it really takes a village. Like, you know, I have an amazing editor, James Ramoser, blog manager, deputy manager, and it's a ton of people who put a lot of effort into the blog and we're delighted. I, I still, truthfully, tw- tw- almost 20 years later, can't get used to the idea that people actually read it. Um, you know, there's a little bit of an element of, like, just, like, typing words that go out into the Internet ether. But we're that, – that's really why we do it now is to be useful to other people.
0: So take me in the room when you first – decided to launch SCOTUS blog. What did you, well, how did it come about and what did you have in mind at that time? Could, did you, I can't imagine that you could have really foreseen that it would uh, explode in the way that it has, but maybe you did. How did it come about in the first place?
2: So it's kind of ironic because this has literally become my life's work, but back in the fall of 2002, I was practicing law with my husband, Tom Goldstein, um, and we were doing a down-to-the-studs renovation of our first house, and I was six or seven months pregnant with our first child, and that's kind of how we keep track of how old the blog is because it's a couple months older than her. She'll be 20 in January. And Tom came to me and he had been following a blog, a legal blog called How Appealing, run by Howard Bashman that covers all of the developments in particular in the world of the courts of appeals and the Supreme Court, but legally, a legal blog more broadly. And he does it all by himself. He's amazing. And Tom came to me and he said, I think we should start a blog about the Supreme Court. And the rationale was that the two of us were practicing law together in a small Supreme Court litigation boutique. And we hadn't done any of the things that people who traditionally practiced before the court had done. We didn't go to Harvard or Yale or Stanford law schools. We hadn't clerked on the Supreme Court. I hadn't clerked at all. And we had not worked in the Office of the U.S. Solicitor General, the Group of around 14 or 15 lawyers who practice, who are the, the federal government's representative in the Supreme Court. And so the thinking was that this would be primarily a business development tool, that people would see this blog that we had about the Supreme Court, it would show off how much we knew about the Supreme Court, and therefore people would want to hire us for their Supreme Court litigation. And in the moment... I said, I think this is the worst idea I've ever heard, not because I didn't think it would be fun, but because I was six months, six or seven months pregnant, and we were doing this full renovation of our house. And I'm thinking, when on earth are we going to find the time to do this in addition to our law practice? And it turned out that it was not really a particularly good business development tool, but it was an awful lot of fun and so over time it sort of switched from sort of morphed from a blog that blogged about the Supreme Court you know in particular here is we did used to do things like here is the petition for review that we just filed and here's why the Supreme Court should take it to a much more journalistic enterprise and a lot of that is due to Lyle Denniston who came to the Skoda's blog in, I think, 2004, he'd already had two retirement parties from the Supreme Court when he retired from the Baltimore Sun and then when he retired from the Boston Globe. So he was at the time probably in his mid to late 70s and decided it would be fun to start writing about the Supreme Court again really on his own terms and the Lyle's depth of knowledge about the court and its history and his professionalism just sort of took us along with him for the ride. And over time, I began spending more and more time working on the blog and enjoy, found that I enjoyed it even more than I enjoyed litigation. And in, I don't know, somewhere around 2011 or so, became a full-time editor for the blog.
0: So the, of course, it's a lot more than a blog. Um, it's not, you know, it's not just um, sort of like, okay, here's what happened today. It has all sorts. It's a catalog of information. So you have all the briefs uh, can be found for a particular case there and petitions before the court, orders of the court. There's a lot of statistics. You keep track of interesting things like the relative uh, representation by gender of arguments, Given before the court, or how often a particular justice is in the majority, things like that. Also, like many blogs, you have a link to other resources, like America's Constitution um, about the court. So it's it's become this big resource, which in some ways has exceeded the court's own website in terms of a a provision for for information. Um, Would you say that in expanding the amount of information that's available about the court? that you've had impact on the court itself? Would you say the court has changed any of its procedures or might change its procedures in the future because of the uh, attention that you focused on various aspects of the court?
2: I think it's hard to gauge a lot of the big picture. There are, are tiny picture points where I do know that the court has changed a little bit. You know, one way is... and. The Supreme Court now has electronic filing. It's been doing that for a couple of years for all uh, petitions for review that are not filed by what's known as informal paupers people who meet certain income deadlines, but so what we call paid petitions, people who pay the filing fee and have their briefs bound in little books. All of those are electronically filed, all of the, the friend of the court briefs that follow that, and then all of the filing on the merits. So in some ways, the, the Supreme Court has, is now doing something very similar to what we're doing. We think we organize the information mm-hmm. a little better. You know, you look, if you look at the page that we maintain for cases, you can see quickly looking at what is you know, color-coded based on the same color of the, the briefs as they're filed. So, you know, an orange brief for a brief in opposition, a gray brief represents the brief from the federal government, um, but in terms of the, the practices of the court, one tiny little data point is that back in the day, the Supreme Court, when it issued its opinions, would have somebody from the clerk's office call the lawyers who argued the case in the Supreme Court and let them know, A, we've issued this opinion and just a little bit of information. You know, the vote was 7-2, to two, Justice Alito wrote the, wrote the opinion, and they don't do that anymore, uh, I think, because you know, first through the through SCOTUS blog, and now through lots of other different news sources, Twitter, um, you know, the information kind of gets out there, and so they don't feel like they have to do it anymore.
0: So, do you feel that you've gotten your finger on the pulse of the court um, more than like a you know a layman when I mean, you're you're accredited to cover the the court in person? Correct.
2: I am. And so that I am accredited through my own blog, how on the court, something that I started several years ago before I had what's known as a hard pass, which is the, the literally it's a, a laminated pass that gives you permanent credentials to cover the court. So I can attend arguments without having to get permission for each individual argument. For example, I'm on the, the email list that the court maintains Um That is was a there was a long process with which I will not bore your listeners. Um, For a long time, the if you had a pass to cover Congress and you came to the Supreme Court and said, "I'm actually covering the Supreme Court full time," can I have a credential? The Supreme Court would say yes. And the Supreme Court's practices have policies and procedures have diverged from Congress. They now issue their own credentials. one of the credentials, one of the requirements for getting that credential is that you not work for a law firm or have a, write for an institution that's supported by a law firm that practices before the Supreme Court. And so, I don't have. That's why I don't have a pass as Amy Howe of SCOTUS blog. I am independent these days from the editorial side of the blog and maintain my own news site as well.
0: Right. So one would characterize you in that sense as a Supreme court journalist.
2: Yes. I mean, I definitely regard myself as a Supreme court journalist, you know, in the sense of, you know, trying to cover the court objectively, not offering, you know, my opinions on the court and not regarding myself as someone who practices before the court anymore. I am now an inactive member of the bars in the District of Columbia and Maryland.
1: Amy and I do things that are in certain respects similar and in other respects somewhat different. So here's what Amy and I have in common among other things. We're not arguing on behalf of clients. We're not taking money from this party or that party. We each aim to have a certain kind of objectivity of a certain sort. Amy unless I've misunderstood, is aiming for a certain kind of journalistic objectivity. I'm trying to aim for a certain kind of scholarly or professorial objectivity. Now, Amy may not know this, uh, and our audience may not know this, but I'm going to start filing, going forward, amicus briefs before the United States Supreme Court. I've done this almost never before, but I'm going to be doing so going forward, because the court is saying, especially in this last term, oh, we're serious about originalism. Well, originalism requires actually not just familiarity with the text of the Constitution, and almost anyone can read the text in an hour or two, and if you keep reading it, you could actually memorize the text, but originalism doesn't require just memorization of the text. It doesn't even require memorization of the text. It requires respect for the text, but it does require serious historical background and understanding, and I think as a professor I who has studied the Constitution and its history for a long time, I can offer that, so I'm going to start filing Amicus briefs going forward with Vikamar, who has been on the podcast before, many times our audience will know and and who himself clerk at the Supreme Court, and I never did. So that's a difference that I'm gonna actually be trying openly from time to time to influence the justices. and Amy, I think as a as a journalist, isn't trying to do that, but neither of us is a hired gun for this party or that one and and we try to have a certain uh, therefore, credibility with the public and with the justices because we're holding ourselves out as objective in a certain way. Now here's the one other similarity is I think Amy and I are both trying to perform a certain kind of public service. And that's why I'm so admiring Amy of you, because I think you really are doing it and we need more people that are trying to, to do that. And you've, you've helped me every, you know, again and again and again, we only met last week. You and I, I think, but you've helped me again and again and again over the years um, through the service that you provide me and thousands, tens of thousands, um, perhaps millions of my fellow Americans. So that's similar to I'm trying with this podcast, for example, Andy, you and I, or our, our website to to offer a certain kind of a public service. And, and it may very well be, Amy, that, that neither you nor um, Andy and I have, have been quite successful at monetizing our, our platform. <laughs> there um, you go. So, so yet another. But here's the big difference. Amy is an expert on all things Supreme Court. And I am claim to be an expert on all things constitutional, and those are different. They, they they are, ordinary people might think they're the same thing, but they're not, because most of what the Supreme Court does isn't actually constitutional. There are a lot of statutory cases, and whether it's employment law or antitrust law or civil procedure or criminal procedure, all sorts of stuff that Amy does day in and day out. She covers, because the Supreme Court is not a purely constitutional court, contra and and a lot of that stuff I'm not following that closely contrary wise I'm particularly interested in constitutional law even outside the Supreme Court not just in lower federal courts which are less the focus of Scott's blog but might be become the focus because are circuit splits that portend uh, Supreme Court cert grants but I'm also interested in stuff that's happening in the other branches when president needs to make a constitutional decision of a a certain sort, or folks in Congress are pondering the 18-year idea for Supreme Court justices and the like. So the Constitution is one thing. The Supreme Court is actually a slightly different thing. This podcast is about all things constitutional, and Amy's expertise is about all things Supreme Court. Now, Amy, have I got that right?
2: That you have gotten that exactly right. I think as far as the point of sort of journalistic integrity, you know, one thing that w- that when I was the editor of Scotus Blog, and again, I don't play any editorial role, um, but I'm pretty sure that the the policies are still the same. And not only are we, was the blog not trying to not trying to influence the court, but because the blog has a slightly unique role as one of the only websites that focuses on the court. You know, we're trying to make sure that we don't become a vehicle for other people who are trying to influence the court. So, when I was the editor, and I know this continues to happen, sometimes you'd get emails after an argument in a big case from someone who said, "I really think the justices got this this point wrong at the oral argument. Can I write an op-ed for SCOTUS Blog?" To, to sort of just put that out there in the hope of correcting the justice's thinking. And, you know, the answer is always unequivocally, no, like, that, like that's definitely not what we're, we're trying to do. And then the distinction between the Supreme court and the constitution is, is spot on. That's, that's um, you know, for example, right now I'm following issues in the lower courts because of the possibility that they may come to the Supreme court and in particular, when something comes to the Supreme Court on the so-called shadow docket, you you don't want to wait until the filing arrives at the Supreme Court to start thinking about and writing about a topic. But the blog focuses on the Supreme Court, which sometimes is constitutional law. Sometimes many times it's not, you know, one of my interests is an international child custody convention, because I worked on a couple of cases involving that has nothing at all to do with the constitution and then Supreme court procedure, which you know can be very inside baseball and frequently like, oh, but some of the procedural stuff doesn't actually make a difference in the outcome. There are some things like talking on the live blog about who might be arguing a particular case or what decisions we're likely to get. There's a good chance we're going to know that in like a half an hour, um, but it helps, it helps to, further the other people's understanding of how the court
1: operates on on, on that Amy just give our audience an example because we always try to make our audience you know experts way smarter and we get into details that other blogs don't because we want to be serious the way you're serious you your aspiration I think is in effect to be the blog of record the way the New York Times at one point held itself out or the Wash Poe or something else the newspaper of Record. So I'll just give our audience an example. If you haven't experienced SCOTUS Blog, Amy may laugh and Andy will laugh because they both know what this is a reference to, but almost no serious constitutional scholar such would have ever known about this but for SCOTUS Blog. Tell them, um, Amy, if you would, about our numbers.
2: Yeah, so this is something that not only no serious, uh, you know, no constitutional scholars, but really anyone knew anything about until the pandemic. So the way that we operated before March of 2020, when the Supreme Court, the Supreme Court would announce when it was issuing decisions and
1: not which decision, but just the not which decisions,
2: but just, just decisions, they'd say, you know, they might say at the end of the week, they would put up on their calendar for the court a note that next Tuesday we will be issuing opinions. Uh, and they don't even commit to it. Like, we might be issuing opinions. Um, <laughs>
0: Maybe,
1: if you're really nice. Yes.
2: And what that would mean was that for most reporters who cover the Supreme Court on a regular basis, I would get up in the morning, get dressed, go down to the Supreme Court, um, to stake out a spot in the court's press room, and then at about the justices at that point always announced their opinions, with very rare exceptions, like Bush versus Gore, uh, would announce their decisions from the bench. They'd all come out from behind the curtain, dressed in their black robes. And the chief justice would say, you know, I have the opinion in whatever the case number was, uh, National Federation of in- Independent Business versus Sebelius, the affordable the first Affordable Care Act case, the individual mandate case. And then he would start to read uh, a summary of that decision. While he's doing that, some reporters, like Nina Totenberg, sometimes Adam Liptak of the New York Times, would be in the courtroom watching this happen. Many of us would be downstairs in the public information office, lined up, and a few minutes before 10, the public information office will bring out boxes of opinions and when at the point that the Chief Justice says, I have the opinion in the National Federation of Independent Business versus Sibelius, they open the box and start handing out copies of that opinion to the reporters who are in the, in the office. We then go back to our desks and start, you know, either getting on the phone with our editors or start, in my case, start typing into the live blog that the Supreme Court just issued its decision in this case and here's what happened. Um, at roughly the same time, the court would post the electronic copies of the decisions on the website for anyone who wanted them. But we knew when the Supreme court was, because again, the Supreme court doesn't tell you which opinions. They also don't tell you how many opinions. Um, They don't announce that in advance. And so the way that we would know that the Supreme court was done was when they were finished up in the courtroom and there were no more opinions to hand out. But when the Supreme court pivoted to uh, the electronic Uh, era in March of 2020 and thereafter, uh, the Supreme Court did not, again, say which opinions or how many. And so then how does the public know when the Supreme Court has finished issuing opinions because it's just someone putting them up on the internet? And the answer is something called R numbers, which reflects the order, as I understand it, in which they're going to be published in the U.S. reporters eventually. And there are no R numbers, on the court's website until they're done issuing decisions for the day. So when you refresh for the last time and you see not only that they've added a new opinion, but that the court has added something called R numbers, then you know that they're done. And it's something that no one paid any attention to until the pandemic, because we knew when they were done, when they didn't have any more opinions to hand out, but now it's a question of when do these R numbers show up.
0: I've discovered how what, the significance of the R number, uh, when the when the justices are done, they go back in the room, and rugula is served. <laughs>
2: <So>. <laughs> you know, another another sort of data point that that yeah, you know, we spend a lot of time focusing on in the live blog as you get closer to the end of the term is you know who is likely to be writing an opinion in a particular case, and the justices. St- try to spread out their workload not only over the course of a a term from October until April, but also within each argument session. And so, you know, you know that if there are nine cases in the October argument session and there's only one opinion left from the October argument session and Justice Alito hasn't written an opinion yet, uh, it's probably pretty likely that Justice Alito is writing that opinion. Again, eventually they're going to release the opinion and you're going to know which one it is. But on the other hand, if it's something, you know, if it's a, a case in which it matters who's writing, you know, if the, if it's Justice Alito writing or, or Justice Sotomayor writing, whether or not the author makes the difference, you know, it's interesting to know who might be writing a particular opinion.
1: And, and here's another inside baseball-like thing that the SCOTUS blog community is Acutely sensitized to thanks to SCOTUS blog, and we weren't before. So, Amy used an example of the Chief Justice announcing that he had the opinion of the court in Sibelius. Now, because of SCOTUS blog, the rest of us are. Exquisitely attentive to just micro issues of timing, you know. In the old days, I'd wait until the next day and find out what the Supreme Court decided, or maybe you know, and two hours later, NPR or an hour later would start to, to fill me in, or maybe even breaking news five minutes later or something mm-hmm. like that. But now, in the Twitterverse, and and we're uh, today, if John Roberts says, "I have the opinion," Sibelius. Amy and her colleagues will immediately blog out. This means that either this is the last opinion today or any other opinion is going to be John Roberts as well, because on any given day the opinions come down in order of reverse seniority, junior to senior of the author of the opinion. So if the first opinion of the day comes down from Amy Coney Barrett, then we who's the most junior justice then we know that the next opinion could come from anyone, again, from Justice Barrett or from any of the other eight. But if the first opinion of the day comes down from John Roberts, oh, we know, actually, that either we're done or it's going to be another Roberts opinion. So those are the sorts of things... because. If our audience hasn't experienced SCOTUS blog, it's like and I'm dating myself a little bit, but but watching a really great color commentator explain football to you or baseball, like John Madden explaining actually how a play action pass works or, you know, um, here's a trap play or uh, diagramming the play. In the long run, truth be told, these issues uh, are not what I tend to write about as a constitutional scholar. Did this opinion come down five minutes before or five minutes after this other one? Oh, but in real time, it's actually fascinating. And truthfully, if you're looking to monetize things, if you can figure out one minute ahead of the world, you know, who's going to hand down the next opinion and which it's going to likely to be, you could actually make money in the market, in fact.
2: Another way to do that, actually, used to, there used to be real possibilities to do that because – there used to be a gap of a couple of minutes between when the Supreme Court and when the Chief Justice in the courtroom said, I have the opinion in such and such a case, and they start handing out the opinions in the public information office, and when the, the opinions actually appeared on the court's website. And so then there really was a you know totally legitimate uh, information gap that, that could have been exploited. Now that the opinions... Even when we were uh, in the public information office before the pandemic, uh, essentially go online simultaneously.
0: You know, I, I remember in two thousand seven. This is uh, has nothing to do with the court, but uh, I was with a friend at an Apple store. Uh, as Steve Jobs is announcing the iPhone, and of course, it, in those days the keynotes from Apple weren't televised um, or, or streamed or anything, and so you, you know people were—we knew it was going to be something—and we're we're watching these blogs saying, "Here's what's happening. Here's what's happening. Here's what's happening," and, and right. watching the stock price go up. <laughs> so, um, very very and, and analogous those, to right. that.
1: Andy, those two are connected. I open a, a, a book that I wrote called The Constitution Today with actually Fox and CNN getting wrong, Sibelius actually because they were in such a hurry to get the information out. They didn't even read to the end of the opinion. Meanwhile, Chirons are streaming a, along the bottom of The TV screen stock prices, for example, and and these are not unconnected, maybe not in the constitutional case, although maybe so in a case like the Obamacare case, the Sibili case that Amy referenced. But in some of these cases, a lot of money is at stake, billions uh, of dollars. And if you, in terms of just arbitrage, are 10 seconds ahead of the world in knowing you know, being able to reliably predict, oh, it's, it's a leto and therefore eh, he's going to be authoring the next opinion and it's going to be, you know, an opinion for the defendants and not the plaintiffs in some big antitrust case or something. That's an arbitrage possibility. And that's why the Supreme Court is super secretive about you know, many of its procedures and protocols. I Amy, mean, and that's a good segue for me to ask about the Dobbs leak. Your take on the whole thing, even today, but also maybe if you can tell us about the who done it that your partner in crime, so to speak, Tom Goldstein uh, uh, wrote about all this, and because he had a whole theory when the, about the Dobbs leak way back when, and it was like it's Agatha Christie, Death on the Nile. Well, actually, it wasn't just one leak; there was a whole series of leaks, and and you know, and this is the first leak to the Washpo, and here's a second leak to to Politico. So it was it was it was something really, as I said almost out of an Agatha Christie novel, but I'd love to get your thoughts on all of this, uh, then and now.
2: Yeah, I mean, it, I was looking back at the blog today to, to get ready for another speaking gig that I had this morning and planning to talk a little bit about the leak. And what I had not realized at the time was that the Dobbs leak became, Politico wrote about it and, and published the, the leaked draft opinion on May 2nd, twenty. Twenty-two on May third of twenty twenty-one, the headline for the podcast that we released that day was the biggest leak in Supreme Court history, mm-hmm. um, and so and, and for another year it was. But I'd, I'd done an interview with Judge John Owen of the U.S. Uh, Judge John Owen's to the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Ninth Circuit about a, a leak from a clerk back in the earliest early twentieth century, and the you know, the leak of the Dobbs opinion. I, I had. Uh, one of my reporter friends texted me when the Politico story went up and she texted me the link to the story and said, you know, did you see this? And, you know, there, there's sort of two parts to the leak. You know, there's the, the fact that the draft opinion was leaked, which in and of itself was extraordinary and, It's not clear what kind of an effect because we don't know who leaked it, how they got the document. It's going to have on the court in the long term. It's operations the trust among the justices and their clerks. And then there's the the fact that, you know, I guess as somebody who's been covering the court for a long time, you could sort of see this draft opinion coming when Justice Barrett joined the court, replacing Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg. When the court had agreed to take on the Dobbs case, and then at the oral argument, you know, it seemed to someone who watches the court closely very possible that the court could be ready to overrule Roe versus Wade and Planned Parenthood versus Casey. But it's still like another thing entirely to actually see the draft opinion. And then, you know, that there was still some uncertainty. After the opinion was leaked, the, the chief justice and the Supreme Court confirmed the next day that it was an authentic draft because it certainly looked like an authentic draft. It sounded like something Justice Alita would write. But the next day they confirmed and they said, well, you know, it's not a final decision. And so then there were all the questions like, is are, are there still going to be five votes for this view when the court issues finally issues its opinion? And what we got was an opinion that looked an awful lot. Like the leaked draft opinion, you know, Justice Alito had had literally millions of people weighing in on what they saw as the flaws in his opinion, and he didn't really make that many changes. And then we, you know, we had the draft, opi- the concurring opinions from Justice Clarence Thomas and Justice Brett Kavanaugh, sort of, you know, diff- two different views on what the Dobbs opinion means—not just for abortion, but for other fundamental rights of privacy. Going forward, you know, we have not heard much from the court at all about the leak. You know, initially, they said that the marshal of the court, a, a, a woman who just taken the job the previous year named Gail Curley, was going to lead the investigation. You know, She has a background as in Army JAG and the national security law. Um, and certainly can also bring in whatever law, you know, legal law enforcement resources she needs, but we haven't heard anything. Um, And so we don't know whether that's because nothing has happened or because they found the person who leaked and they've managed to keep it quiet. I I suspect it's that they still don't know who it is because I can't imagine that that information itself hasn't leaked. Um, You know, and there's the question as Tom's, Piece for Scotus blog suggested, like, who leaked it, um, and what what purpose were they trying to serve? And unless we know who the leaker was, it's hard to know what you know whether they were successful in whatever their goal was.
0: I mean, sometimes you know we've had Bob Woodward on our our uh, podcast as a guest, and in discussions with him, I think you get a sense that uh, a skilled reporter can get uh, people to say things just because they like to charm the reporter, you know, or, or into, into, well, I'm in the know and here's something I know, you know, there may not actually be a nefarious uh, motive, you know, behind it, or there may be, I mean, you know, or, and, and, or perhaps a misguided motive, you know, perhaps someone thought it would accomplish a and actually led led to B Um, or not a (laughs) Um, and and Amy did,
1: identify what makes this different than all other leaks, which isn't just gossiping about what's coming down the pike, who's writing on which side, what maybe what the lineup is or the outcome is. But to have the draft opinion itself be distributed is really something that we have never seen before. Amy, with your permission, we'll put up at least a link, but maybe even uh, Tommy's Piece in general, his his sleuthing about his his speculation about what he believes to be a series of distinct leaks, possibly with slightly different purposes.
2: Absolutely, I mean, as the the piece says, there was some some reporting ahead of the leak, where it was easier to to try to discern the motives. There there aren't a lot. Part of what made this so remarkable was the draft opinion itself, but just more generally, there are not a lot of significant leaks from the court itself. And usually you can kind of figure out what the motive is to the extent that there is one from the leak, you know, before the affordable care act case, uh, you know, trying to get the chief justice to stay with the conservatives, um, you know, and then in this sort of similar suggestions, trying to keep justice Kavanaugh on board perhaps, but, but the, the leak of the draft opinion itself you know, a you know is is much more remarkable, and I think B the justices themselves regard it as a much more serious offense because it is like literally their uh, not just their deliberations but their work product out there in in the
1: internet. I I think that
0: uh, it was it was a keel because he wanted to know if he was cited in the. uh, the Oh, Andy, you read my mind. I'm going to (laughs) actually jump
1: in on that in just a second. Uh, So um, but first, I, I would just connect some dots. Amy referred earlier to the so-called shadow docket, the term coined by my protege and and dear friend Will Bode, where the Supreme Court makes sometimes very consequential decisions, but without full briefing and argument because it's on an expedited basis, as sort of emergency docket. They're deciding whether to put on hold or not a lower court decision during the pendency of litigation. So the benefit of hindsight, it becomes blindingly clear from the Texas SB8 litigation, which we talked about on our episode with Ed Whalen, you could see even in that one, again, with the benefit of hindsight, what the votes were going to be in um, the Dobbs case, because the court basically allowed lower courts to unravel completely Roe versus Wade, that was a six week ab- abortion uh, a ban that kicked in at six weeks. They allowed a majority of the court did this abortion ban to, to operate, in effect, signaling that Roe versus Wade w- w- was doomed. And the, the liberals were apoplectic. In, in a shadow doctic case, and actually John Roberts um, was over the top and talking about Marbury versus Madison. And, you know, Andy, our audience knows that that I thought that was overheated and, and not quite true. But with the benefit of hindsight, you could say, yes, the justices are letting this Texas law go into operation because they know that in their mind, they're highly likely to overturn Roe versus Wade in the Dobbs case after full briefing because they already kind of know their their dispositions and leanings. Now again, this is blindingly clear in hindsight when you when you look back. Well, of course they're going to uphold a 15-week abortion ban in Mississippi because they'd already signaled that the Texas law could go into operation at six weeks, and in effect, that's tossing Roe and Casey overboard. So again, these things are more clear in, in hindsight. And and if it's going to be that, you you see the chief peeling off, so you can actually kind of predict the lineup, even if not that it's going to be Alito, just. With the benefit of hindsight, now Andy, you you stole uh, you know me too well because as soon as the Dobbs leak was posted on the internet, within minutes, various outlets actually posted the thing. I quickly looked at it, and in thirty seconds, I said, "This is authentic," and because I actually looked to see what was cited and. And it cited me and Philip Bobbitt did Alito's draft. And and for certain pages and propositions that only Sam Alito actually, um, and, and there's no way a forger would have known like all of that. Sam Alito would cite his friends Akil and, and Philip for certain, you know, for certain propositions because Sam Alito and Philip Bobbitt have a certain common ideas about certain things and not other things. So I looked and then 30 seconds said, if this is a forgery, it's a total master forgery because they've gotten so into Sam Alito's head that they even know what kind of weird sites he would have that no one else would have.
2: Yeah, and 98 pages of a really good forgery is just... Next to
1: impossible. Bill Buckley once wrote a kind of a, a Washington tell-all, you know, talking about all his, you know, Washington pals or something like that. And he gave an inscribed copy to one of his friends, but he didn't inscribe it actually on the flyleaf as is customary. He actually inscribed it in the index entry with his friend's name in it. And the little and, and, and scripture says, I knew you would look here first. Says, because in Washington, D.C., that's the way you read the book. You first flip to the index to see if it mentions you, and then you look to see what they're saying about you. So I, uh, you got me totally, Andy, guilty as charged. That's how I act. I get the Alito draft. The first thing I do is do a control F for my name uh, just to see. But then I in 15 seconds later said this is totally authentic because no one else could, you know would have done it that way.
0: Well, you no forging. You yeah. can imagine a, a situation where someone could have gotten a hold of it and just changed parts of it. So you know, so the, that that could have happened, and then the rest of it would look authentic, and that would actually be a very effective way because people would make the conclusion that you just made. Interesting. Um, so that's that's one thing. The other thing is I'm yes. thinking that in terms of the effect that the leak had on the ultimate product, you could say, well, it leaked, and maybe people were rigid in their positions, you know, as a result of that or something like that, so therefore it didn't change that much. But also it could have had an effect on the concurrences. So Amy pointed out that uh, there was quite a lot of discussion of the opinion, obviously, um, or the draft opinion before it came out. So the public's reaction to the opinion, you know, was... Fairly clear, so they were, you know, well, this this part or that part. What about travel? What about this? And and of course, we even had a podcast episode uh, on the Dobbs deal where we said, okay, here's the draft, but it's not written in stone, and maybe you know people like the chief can can uh, try to rally the troops and get the liberals on on board for a different decision by addressing this. But instead, what happened was we had concurrences that addressed some of the things that we said might be in the deal. Um, So this is something that could have come out of the, the fact that it leaked and people's opinion uh, were became, uh, became known. Uh, Your reaction, Amy.
2: I think that I think it's possible. Obviously we don't know, but I do think that at least as far as we're talking about the concurring opinions from justice Thomas and justice Kavanaugh, you know, if you read Justice Kavanaugh's opinion, it sounds an awful lot like what he said at the oral argument. You know, it doesn't seem like a. he may not have written it yet, but I'm not sure how much the content may have changed. Maybe some of the reassurance, you know, the idea that the Constitution is neutral on abortion, maybe some of the assurances toward the end of his concurring opinion about how this, you know, you can't restrict the right to travel for an abortion. That this doesn't affect our decisions in cases like Lawrence versus Texas and the right to same-sex intimacy, Obergefell and the right to same-sex marriage. Um, you know, maybe were a response to some of the backlash, but that it, it's hard to know. Justice Thomas, you know, mm-hmm. it, perhaps if anything, you know, leaking the opinion may have prompted him to sort of double down. But again, it doesn't seem like. It was was definitely not a response to any of the outrage
1: about the opinion. Okay, here's a hard question, Amy, um, and I don't know if anyone's asked you this before, and I don't, I'm, and I'm not at all sure what your answer will be. Um, Andy mentioned uh, our dear friend, our mutual friend, Bob Woodward, who's been a guest on this podcast before, and and he's the dedicatee of one of my books, and I, I adore him, and he's very famous for. A, a book all about Supreme Court clerks yes. you know, leaking and the justice themselves, the brethren co-authored with Scott Armstrong. We're going to, so he's been on the podcast. You're now on the podcast. Now we mentioned Nina Totenberg. She's going to be on the podcast later this fall. Nina is very famous for getting some people to to tell her stories, including Anita Hill. And also, after the fact, Lewis Powell telling her stories about how he, before he was a justice, he had some life experiences as a lawyer involving clients and and friends who had uh, undergone an abortion. So, And she broke that story. Now, you say you want to be a journalist in the tradition of the Wash Poe or the New York Times. The most famous journalists or among the most famous are people who actually um, broke stories, broke news with leaks, Bob Mm -hmm. Woodward. Nina Totenberg. Now you're you're nodding. You're you're seeing the question coming. Even if you're not soliciting any leak from a clerk or a justice, if you got one, would Scotus Blog be interested in scooping the world Bob Woodward style, Nina Totenberg style by publishing a leak?
2: Absolutely. Oh, you would. Oh okay. yes.
1: Okay. Even though the justices might not be so happy with you if you did that.
2: No, I, I assume that the just. I, I hope that the justices are never happy with everything I'm writing. You know, I hope that because I'm, you know, writing about the court, you know, as a journalist.
0: Okay. So you you are, are you're you're announcing to the world that you are. My DMs are open, yes. Okay. Okay. (laughs) Well, you know, I, I think it's so interesting, the journalistic standards that you hold yourself to uh, one might call them almost old fashioned in a good way. You know, I, 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 I heartily endorse them. Uh, we were actually talking about the fact that that some journalistic uh outlets are are getting away from some of these standards so for example, look I mean the new york times i no. uh, I'll probably be buried with a copy of the New York Times you know in my in my <laughs> grave, you know with me um because it'll i won't they'll have to pry it from my cold dead hands right but um used to be if they wrote an article and it was not purely news and it wasn't on the op-ed page, it would say news analysis next to it. No longer. Now, you know, analysis mixed, whereas you're holding yourself to, you know, these standards, I think, of uh, really separating news from from your opinion, you know, not really providing your opinion.
1: And and Andy, this
0: podcast is much more opinionated,
1: and we announced that from the beginning, America's Constitution. But but Amy, because you haven't yet, I think, at SCOTUS blog published any sort of leak. But, there aren't but, as again, there aren't a lot. But here's but here's actually the complexity. Nina Totenberg isn't a member of the bar and neither is Bob Woodward. And as a member of the bar, are you actually you have certain rules that might make it more complicated for you to participate in another lawyer's breach of confidentiality? See, I, I I'm not a member of a bar, by the way. I right. should, should, should know. Um, um, would that actually raise complexities for you?
2: I have to think about the complexities. Yeah. You
1: see, because I, I can't instance, get this barred, and neither right. can Bob Woodward, and neither right. can Colbert. Right. But you could.
2: I could. I mean, it wouldn't. Like, it would be kind of. It would be embarrassing, but it wouldn't. It wouldn't affect my work otherwise because I'm. I haven't practiced law in nearly a decade.
0: Perhaps you should resign from the bar for that reason.
2: I think about that whenever I pay my fees every year because <laughs> 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 you, you still have to pay 200. It's less than, you know, it's less than the fees to be an active member of the bar, but it's still like $200 a year for each bar. So it's a good point.
0: So uh, very interesting. So let's change gears a little bit. Um, we, but still, of course, talking about the court because SCOTUS blog never changes gears away from the court either. Um
2: yeah, we're a one gear bike, basically.
0: Yes. <laughs> so during the pandemic, you know, there have been some changes in the way the court has done its business. Um, obviously, you know, the oral arguments didn't play, take place in person you know, the whole time, or sometimes some justices were in person and some justices weren't, like uh, uh, which led to a little kerfluffle about whether or not uh, uh, Sonia Sotomayor and Neil Gorsuch were at each, uh, You know, had a little tension there. Um, and that was, and that was a Nina Totenberg, you know,
1: leak of some sort. Right, in right. of it's but, definitely, it was
0: Nina's story. But now the court is going back to oral arguments in person, I believe this term, correct?
2: So it's, that's an interesting question. So the chief justice speaking at the judicial conference, the judges meeting for the 10th the circuit out in Colorado did indicate that the court was going to be back in person. We haven't had like any other news or details from the court about that. And we're getting progressively closer to the start of the court's new term. So, you know, I would assume that they, you know, that it's going to be sort of back to the way things were. I haven't heard anything about new protocols, both of the lower federal court's, in the District of Columbia. So and I mentioned this because it means that they are sort of dealing with the same virus level, for lack of a better word. The D.C. Circuit and the Federal Circuit are now open. So uh, presumably the Supreme Court is going to be open in the sense that anybody who's willing to wait in line, uh, either as a lawyer or as a member of the public, can then walk in, go through the metal detectors and sit down in the courtroom
0: now now one of the things that that happened as a result of these i think it's as a result of the zoom conferences is that the method of questioning changed so uh whereas before you had you know chaos um in a sense uh you know the the advocate gets two sentences out and then you know justice random justice x uh asks the question except that x does not equal clarence thomas um and uh you know, so so that it was, it was it was not an argument that was even an argument. You know, in in some ways. But then, and they, people talked over each other, just like I'm talking over you yes, right now. It was pell mell. Yes. You know, um, <laughs> and and sometimes you know, yes, chaos. But then they went to a, okay, you ask, then you ask, then you ask, and and you know, so that was very different, and and advocates got to make their arguments, and Justice Thomas started asking questions. So. Um, I mean, uh, do you? What's your prediction when we go go back to uh, oral arguments in person? Do you think they'll retain this, or what? What do you think will happen?
2: I do, and so just to sort of recap for your listeners, uh, before the pandemic, the Supreme Court was what had been for some time what's known as a hot bench, as you suggested. I, I remember going to one argument, and the lawyer who had won in the lower courts. And so then you go second, got up and said, you know, Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the court. And I think literally got out the word the before he was interrupted. And, you know, there are these stories. I'm not sure whether they're apocryphal or not about lawyers practicing so that they paused to take a breath in the middle, in the middle of the sentence rather than at the end of the sentence so that you would give the justices fewer opportunities to break in um, so then when the court went remote because of the pandemic uh, in May of 2020, they were doing it purely by telephone. We're recording by Zoom, which is nice because you and that's how we record our podcast. You can see each other even if you're only ultimately using the audio and it makes it less likely that you're going to interrupt. But they were doing this entirely on the phone. They couldn't see each other. They couldn't see the lawyer who was arguing. The lawyer couldn't see them. So you wouldn't know when someone might have wanted to to break into your your, uh, answer. Um, And so they realized, as you said, that that was going to be chaos. So they went to a new uh, format in which they started with the chief justice and then Justice Thomas, uh, Justice Pryor, Justice Alito, or Justice Ginsburg was, was there at the time, all the way through to the most junior justice uh, who for a while was justice Kavanaugh and then justice Barrett. And that seemed to work fine over the phone. I think a lot of the more experienced lawyers thought it was kind of stilted and wanted to be able to sort of address the justice's real concerns rather than having to go justice by justice. But one thing that we did, that did change when they went to the what they call the Syrian questioning was that Justice Thomas, who didn't like the free-for-all format that they used to use and rarely asked questions, became, he was the second second justice to ask questions, became an active questioner. And so when they returned to the courtroom in October of 2021, uh, only the reporters with permanent credentials, the law clerks, the lawyers and the staff were there, they kept sort of the, the free-for-all approach for 30 minutes, but then when the 30 minutes are up, they would use the seriatim questioning. The chief justice would ask any questions that he had, and then he'd go through the justices in order of reverse seniority. And it seems to be sort of a nice, happy medium, I think for everyone. Justice Thomas continues to ask questions. He's often the first justice to ask questions after the lawyers have made their opening remarks. And there seems to be a sense that because everybody knows that they're going to get their turn to ask questions, it's a little more relaxed. It's a little less hot. People get a little bit more of a chance to answer. The lawyers get more of a chance to answer their questions. Now, I'm not going to call it a downside, but the byproduct of this format is that the arguments can be really long sometimes because uh, if you have multiple lawyers arguing and one lawyer has 20 minutes, the other lawyer has 10 minutes, and then, say, the third lawyer has 30 minutes, um, you know, that, that 20 minutes with everybody getting a chance to ask questions at the end can turn into 40 minutes really easily and so you have arguments where sometimes like i think was the vaccines argument in january when they there were challenges to the constitutionality of a vaccine mandate for large employers and for healthcare workers they actually took like a little bit of a break in between arguments because we were there for so long
1: thank you so i just want to add two points um one Amy just said, oh, these are really long argue, uh, oral arguments now, and I'm smiling because from the point of view of a constitutional historian, I just yes. want to remind <laughs> Amy that back in the day of McCulloch versus Maryland, you know, which is where my head is half the time, oral argument was six days. Yes, okay. that's and, definitely um, true. And then it used- to be an hour for each side and then it became half hour for each side so it's a little bit Andy like that scene that you and I have discussed offline from time to time as friends in Annie Hall about you know two, three times a week and how that looks different to the Diane Keaton character than to the Woody Allen character. I did want to talk about a slightly related aspect of oral argument and you earlier I'll, I'll connect it this way, you earlier talked about how the blog originally was maybe a business development tool and it, it didn't quite materialize that way. And you were very, you know, genteel and polite about it. But here's my take on this. The Supreme Court, the justices themselves, and the lawyers who argue before them are a very insular club. And they went to certain schools, you know, Harvard and Yale had certain background, certain clerkships, and certain recommenders and the like, And you were very polite about it, but you say it's actually hard to break into that club if you didn't fit that profile. That's really interesting. I think that's true. Okay. The club of Supreme Court oral advocates. Here's one really interesting thing that your, the SCOTUS blog has among the statistics that you generated and I just want to know the backstory. story you generated certain statistics that even the Harvard Law Review used to uh, feature every year what co- cross correlation is there on voting between any two justices, which justices vote together most often, which votes justices vote together least often so so there are all sorts of interesting statistics which justices are just handing down how many opinions a year how many concurrences, how many dissents, how many majority opinions, from which sittings, all Sorts of fascinating statistics, but of a sort that I've seen that I'd seen elsewhere before. Harvard Law Review ha- has annually uh, an issue on the Supreme Court in November. But here's what I first saw on Scholar's Blog, and I want to know if this is, you know, Scottish Blog's innovation, and Amy, whether in particular it was your innovation. You actually highlight the gender uh, balance of Supreme Court oral advocates. That's one of the statistics that you actually highlight is how many men. How many women in a given year are actually the Supreme Court oral advocates? Was that one of your innovations? And and tell us just how you think about that. because you're not just a really prominent person in the ecosystem, but you're the den mother of, uh, as so to speak, of, of the thing. And and it's a gendered world. So was that your innovation?
2: I cannot take any credit for it. Um, for the for Scotia's blog tracking them. Um, it is definitely an issue that I care a lot about, along with transparency at the court is my other sort of, one of my other bugaboos about the court. Yeah, I've moderated and sat on some panels about this, and there are certainly other news sites that have also paid attention to this issue. I don't know who else might be tracking them on an ongoing basis, but it was something that you know, I used to write about on my own blog. I remember, you know, several years ago, the Solicitor General's office is quite good. No matter particular, uh, no matter who the Solicitor General is, which administration about hiring female lawyers to argue before the Supreme Court. But once you get past the lawyers from the Solicitor General's office, sometimes uh, lawyers from state Solicitor General's office it was often relatively rare to see women from private law firms arguing. And I remember in particular, there was one term in which we got to February before there was a woman from private practice arguing before the court, which is just, you know, ridiculous when you look at how many women are graduating from law school these days, how many women are clerking at the court. And as you say, it's a tough business to break into, you know, I remember years ago when Goldstein and how my former firm was offering to represent an inmate in federal prison uh, because he had in his case, he had what was known as a circuit split. The courts of appeals were divided on a legal question and you get back the letter from him written handwritten because they don't have access. They didn't have access to computers and said like, how many cases have you argued and how many have you won? And I think progress it's gotten progressively more difficult over the years to break into the Supreme Court bar. I think, you know, more and more of the cases are argued by repeat players, um, you know. And so having women argue from the Solicitor General's office and then go out into private practice to argue there and then having lawyers who argue regularly before the Supreme Court who have big Supreme Court practices like your former student Neil Katyal or or John Elwood who's now at Arnold Porter who have enough arguments that they're willing to say to their client like you know my partner you know can argue this case instead of me and she'll do a great job is something that really needs to happen because I do think there's a momentum that once you get that first argument it's much easier to get the second argument.
0: Yeah, I can I can identify with that as a as a surgeon. Um, you know, because you know it would be a new procedure so I'm I'm I retired ophthalmologist I was, in, you know, doing eye surgery and when LASIK came along, you know, no one had done any of it because it was a new procedure and then the patients want to know, you know, how many cases have you done? And of course, you have to be truthful theoretically, so I certainly always was. But you know, people would say things like, "Well, I've done a thousand lasers." Of course, <laughs> you know that that could mean anything, you know, right. uh, you know, or something like that. So it, it would be be misleading, which is, which is very unfortunate if that kind of thing happens. So, so what in our case in, in medicine, you have you um, know, situation where you have patients that come to clinics, you know, that get uh, uh, free care, you know, that they for, that they wouldn't be able to get otherwise. And perhaps in the legal world, you know, the pro bono cases or something like that can get, you know, farmed out so that the more junior associates, whether it's a woman or, or, or not, can build up uh, experience that way. And then they can say, I've done, you know, 10 cases, truthfully, you know, and and uh, you know I've won however many. Um, and, and, and Andy,
1: here's um, – uh, Amy just slipped this in, but again, for those – We're interested in just learning more about the Supreme Court world. There's another little inside baseball point that she just slipped in. But Amy, correct me if I'm wrong. Tommy's original kind of nifty idea, you know, his niche was that he was going to pay particular attention to circuit splits because the Supreme Court decides what cases it's going to hear. And Tommy realized actually that one very important predictor of that was whether lower courts actually were divided on on an issue. And so he was going to actually be able to spot before other folks were, which were the likely issues that the Supreme Court would take because there were circus bliss. And if he could spot them before other people um, did, he could maybe actually become the, the lawyer who could write a cert petition, for example, that would be more likely to be a successful cert petition because only a very small percentage of cert petitions from private litigants are actually, uh, granted by the court, the court tends to focus most of all on certain petitions from or approvals by the Solicitor General's office. Things if, if the SG wants the Supreme Court to take a case, it, it takes it at a pretty high percentage. Or even if the SG says we're not asking you to take this case, but we approve of we um, we recommend that you take the case, or so we have no objection to your taking the case. But if you're just a private lawyer. For a private client trying to get the Supreme Court's attention, it's pretty hard. But my image is that a long time ago, your life partner, you know, and former law partner, uh, Tom Tommy Goldstein realized, ah, if I can identify circuit splits. I can actually do cert petitions. And then if I get the court to grant cert, maybe I can actually break into the Supreme court bar by being, you know, the, the, the lawyer at the oral argument and, and in the full briefing stage. Have I got that basically, and you mentioned circus, plus just very briefly in, mm-hmm. in your, in your, have I got that story basically right?
2: I think it's basically right. Like I will confess I'm a little fuzzy on the exact details too, but it was definitely, it was definitely among the first people to start to do that and then to, to go out and approach the lawyer who handled the argument in the lower courts. And which is, you know, it's kind of a gutsy call. You're like, I'm going to I'm offering to do this because I think I'm going to do a better job. You know, I have that because I have the expertise, but it's become much more common over time. The second case that I argued was a case involving the interpretation of an international child custody convention. And my client had lost my, what my eventual client had lost in the fifth circuit. Uh, the fifth circuit in its opinion had very helpfully included a subheader that was the circuit split. And so <laughs> Thank you. Uh, this, this, yeah. So this was when I was working with the Stanford clinic um, and people, you know, people tend to have areas of, of expertise, even, among the lawyers who argue regularly before the Supreme court, Jeff Fisher is an expert in uh, criminal, criminal procedure. Pam Carlin's an expert on civil rights law. This was not an issue that really fell into anyone's particular area of expertise. So I said, well, I'll, I'll go ahead and make the call. Um, when I called the lawyer who'd handled the case in the lower court, we were the third law school clinic to hmm. call and offer to represent hmm. his client in the Supreme court.
0: You know, uh you mentioned that there's this barrier to entry based on the client wanting someone who done a number of, of cases. Um, when we had Neil Katya on, he talked about it from another point of view, which I think is interesting, which is that the justices, he said, uh, trust lawyers that have argued before them repeatedly and who have accurately represented you know the facts and the and uh, and a variety of of other things, the cases and, uh, you know, and so forth. Uh, and they've found that yes, we can trust this lawyer. So that gives him a leg up or her um, in arguing subsequent cases. So it's also not just that the client might prefer such a lawyer, but even the justices prefer an experienced lawyer in that sense. I thought that was quite yeah. Interesting. I think
2: that I think that particularly this generation of justices, so to speak. I think that they really appreciate I mean the flip side, I think they really appreciate a lawyer who is an excellent advocate and you know has spent years litigating issues, who's not a Supreme Court specialist. Um, and so you know someone like Julie Reichelman, who is now a nominee for a, a spot on the Second Circuit, but argued a couple of the major, uh, abortion cases and is you know a knows reproductive rights law hold and b is an excellent advocate but you know I, I think the justices also know that when they have somebody like neil that if you know, he's going to be he knows the drill he's going to be responsive to their questions um and there's you know There is sort of a a reputational, like, you know, you're not you're going to you're going to be straight with them because you know that you're going to be back in front of them and you want them to trust you.
1: And and Andy, it begins even before your first oral argument um, when you begin to develop a reputation with them, because as Amy alluded to at the beginning of our conversation, many of these leaders of the Supreme Court bar were Supreme Court clerks. And of course, many of the justices, you know, begin as Supreme Court clerks whether it's Steve Breyer who just retired or Katenji Brown Jackson who just replaced him. And, and she of course was, was um, his law there.
0: Yes. So we're going to be wrapping up soon, but I'd, I'd be remiss if, if I didn't uh, get our listeners to get a little bit of the benefit of your expertise in terms of the term that's about to begin. We're coming up on the first Monday in October. In fact, this uh, podcast, may, well, it'll should air before that. Um, so as you look ahead to the term that's, uh, that's coming up, I think most people are aware of the, of the affirmative action cases and also of the, uh, ISL case come out of uh, North Carolina. Um, what other cases are you focused on? Uh, or do you think the justices may be focused on?
2: So one of the big cases that, that I think people are likely to be focused on is a case called 303 creative versus Alanis. Um, Many of your listeners may remember that back in 2018, the justices heard the case of a Colorado baker who did not want to make custom wedding cakes for same sex Mm -hmm. marriages. And he took the case all the way up to the Supreme Court. Um, The Supreme Court, this is 2018, the Supreme Court essentially punted, to use a very technical legal term on you know, whether or not this violated his right to free speech. And it said that the Colorado Administrative Agency had effectively treated him unfairly because of his religion. So they sent the case back to the lower courts. And this is a case that also comes out of Colorado, it involves very similar issues. A woman named Lori Smith, who creates custom websites and says that she does not want to create custom wedding websites for same-sex couples. You know, one thing that has changed since 2018 is that the court has changed quite a bit. It's gotten much more, it's it's gotten more conservative. Justice Kennedy has been replaced by Justice Brett Kavanaugh. Uh, Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg has been replaced by Justice Barrett. So I'm curious to see what they do with this case. You know, not just the fact that they agreed to hear the case, strongly suggests to me that they, there are you know, four justices who think that they've got a fifth vote to rule in favor of Laurie Smith, the designer. But you know, what are they going to do and what is it going to mean for other kinds of speech that may not be religious speech necessarily, but you know, can someone, you know, can a white supremacist post a sign that he doesn't want to deal with, with people of color? And so, you know, sort of what they say and how they say it um, will be very interesting.
0: You know, you just made a very interesting point um, within that analysis about cert uh, petitions. You know, the, people know that it, that it takes, uh, you know, four votes to grant uh, Saussure um, on the petition. But you said that, well, this means that four justices believe that they have a fifth vote. So that's a very yes. different way of, of looking at it than saying, oh, four people want to hear the case. Okay, maybe because they feel it's worth hearing or something like that. But rather, you know, four justices think they have a fifth vote. That's a very different way of thinking about uh, a Shuri. Very interesting.
2: Yeah, I, I mean, that was definitely, I think, in play last term in the gun case, New York State Rifle and Pistol Association versus Bruin. The justices hadn't had a Second Amendment case in, I think it was 12 years. And Justice Thomas would dissent, or you know, write statements regarding the denial of review in some of these different gun cases that would come to them, and you know, they would say, you know, "Why are we, you know, why are we treating the Second Amendment differently? We should take up a Second Amendment case and weigh in on the right to carry a gun outside of your home." And the conventional wisdom, and we don't know whether it was was true, was that you know they weren't sure about the Chief Justice whether or not they had a fifth vote at the time with Justice Barrett. Maybe they've they probably felt more confident they had a fifth vote. And it turns out they, you know, had the chief justice as well.
0: Any other cases you have your eye on for this year?
2: Oh, goodness. Um, You know, one case that is not at the Supreme Court yet, but seems likely to be there is a case involving uh, a Texas law regulating internet sites like Facebook and and Twitter, uh, along with a, a Florida law. And it was sort of a response to a case, case out of Texas is called net choice um, response to what conservatives see as efforts to buy social media companies to sort of tip the scales in favor of Democrats during elections, what kind of speech they can regulate. So also watching that pretty closely, the Florida just Florida has a similar law and just filed a petition
1: for review. So that could be at the court this term. Amy, is that the case that Judge Oldham decided recently? Yes. Um, okay. Yes. And keep your eye on Judge Oldham. He's a very gifted judge who is beloved by many in the federal Society. And judges, lower court judges who are beloved by the Federalist Society, find their way onto short lists for uh, future Republican presidents.
0: Okay. Well, this, uh, this is fantastic. So of course it's dot uh, SCOTUSblog.com and, uh, uh, as well as the uh, blog, how on the court, um, so that you, you know, you can read more of Amy's insights and she's, you still write for Scotus Blog as well. Uh, I, from, do, yes. I do. I mm-hmm. do. Right. So you can see that her, her, I suppose her legacy as well as her ongoing work in these places. And, uh, one of my reasons for asking Amy to forecast about the coming term is so that we can ask her to come back at the end of the term <laughs> and we'll see how her uh, predictions and her perspective um, you know, uh, plays at the, at the end of the term. So I hope you'll, you'll join us again at that time.
2: I would be delighted. This has been so much fun. Thank you for having me.
0: Thank you so much.